Welcome to another edition of the Conversations That Matter podcast. I am pleased today to have some guests with me, some very special guests uh, from the Ars Politica uh, podcast, which is, is a pretty new podcast. I would encourage you to subscribe to it. Uh, and the two co-hosts of that are Thomas Accord, who is the headmaster of a classical school, and Stephen Wolf, uh, who's done some writing for Sovereign Nations. Many of you are probably familiar with Sovereign Nations. And uh, guys, I'd just like to thank you uh, so much for being on and being willing to talk about a subject that many Christians are having a hard time navigating. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us on. Pleasure. Yeah. So I want to I start out with something that I heard from you on, I think it was your last podcast or perhaps the podcast before. I'm not sure if you've released one since then, but it was on a theology or I should say a philosophy of place. And you, you articulated some things in that podcast. It was about an hour that I thought were just very well stated. They're things that I, I believed that I um, have, I think, articulated in different ways, but not quite as clearly as you guys did. And you worked through it uh, sequentially, well, just, just orderly. And I really appreciate that. That helps people. And right after that, we have this big blow up about nationalism. And I, I see these things as so related. And so I want to help. Uh, this is the goal, just for everyone listening. I want to help people who are Christians, especially to navigate uh, the, all, the, all the bad things they're hearing about nationalism. Uh, it, some, some are feeling like they're being attacked because they love this country. Uh, they're confused by it. Uh, what does the Bible say about that? Why are Christian leaders condemning this? And so I want to come up with some clear um, ideas from Scripture. And, then, and, and, and just also, I mean, with the classical school background, just um, the traditions that have been passed down to us, I want to understand kind of where we sit uh, in uh, Western civilization. And, and so um, the first question, and I'll, I'll pose this to you, Stephen, if you don't mind, what is nationalism? What's all the, the crazy hoopla about uh, this word that's so condemned? What is nationalism? <clears throat> well, that, that's, a, that's a challenging thing to answer. Your first, I think your first instinct is to kind of disavow or to say, well, it's not this, it's not that. Um, and, and that's probably natural in kind of a post-World War II uh, era. But uh, um, I think that if you want to just, I think for a, a positive uh, take on this, I think you should just first recognize that, that human beings tend to organize within these people groups, these nations. And this is recognized, I mean, not only classically, but also in Christian tradition as being these, this, the, the way that, that humans can share with one another you have a what what some people have called a sort of symbiosis this this life together um and it's it's formed uh with these certain bonds that you develop over time and these are often called uh nations and they're nations because they have these cultural distinctives um now na nationalism i guess you could say that's a sort of ideology maybe but uh it's it really depends on how you define it nationalism could simply be that a people as a as a people group as a nation uh arrange themselves in civil government or uh through social institutions through culture and 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 through these things they kind of secure their themselves as a people because there's threats from the outside there's threats from the inside so you could think of i i think nationalism in a positive way as really just kind of the sort of uh, the arrangements that, that that a people set up to kind of protect themselves as a people. So this is an organic kind of thing. This isn't a top-down um, 
organized from, from some group of elites in a back room. This is something that just happens over time and as an extension of family. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I, I think it, ha- it can happen all, uh, on a, a number of ways. I mean, it can hap- happen from elites. Oftentimes, I, I guess in the, in the best situation, you have elites who love their country, see themselves as having a duty not only to themselves or to some kind of globalist or to other aristocrats in other countries, but also to themselves as a people, uh, seeing themselves as uh, the people, like the, the, the group with an obligation to protect to serve um, the entire nation itself. So, I mean, you, you, can, you can, this arrangement can happen in a number of ways. It can come, come from the bottom up, kind of come from the top. Uh, but still, the, the, the idea behind it, this, the, you can say the, the best version of the ism of nationalism is simply the people kind of arranging themselves so that they can secure their way of life, the, the good of this uh, collective, the, this sense of, uh, of we, this idea that we are a people, we have distinctives, we want to protect them, it's good for our children, uh, and for this reason, we're going to protect it and secure it. You know, I, I was talking to someone the other day about this whole issue because it's so controversial right now for some odd reason. And, um, and, and this person I was talking to brought up the fact that Poland, uh, and there's many countries like this, uh, for many years did not have a political representation, but they retained their identity as a people. And you, you see artificial kind of borders being made. I, I think uh, perhaps a place like Afghanistan is a good example uh, where, or um, maybe I'm thinking of Iraq, where you have, um, you know, the Kurdish region and you have uh, the Sunnis and the Shiites and it doesn't really work. And uh, it, it seems like people do sort of separate into groups based on, um, based on certain factors. And, you know, Thomas, uh, I know that you've traveled extensively in Europe and you were talking about that in your last podcast. Um, what kinds of things do you think, if you, if you had ingredients and you say, these are the things that make up a nation, what would you put in that or, or use to describe that? Uh, sort of things that I think Stephen already mentioned, that things that are natural among people, um, sort of like the love of place, um, myths, memories. Myths are big, stories. I think there's a quote from uh, Chesterton I saw the other day that said, Without stories, there, there, there are no people. Without fairy tales or something. Uh, symbols, traditions, um, customs, fest- festivities. This is one thing I saw when I was living in Italy that I mentioned the other day. They had, it was like every other week, they had a holiday, that was a day off. And I didn't know about it, but they all knew. And it, but it, it, it was a way that they told time together, a calendar. Um, so these are, these are sorts of things that take time to develop. They develop organically. Uh, and that, that's the, some of the ingredients. So in Genesis 10, uh, uh, verse 5, it says, The nations were separated into their lands, so there's place, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Um, and I, I was reading that this morning, and I thought, you know, that, that seems and I, like the, the basic elements. And, and from that, we have, you know, the, what you were just talking about, Thomas, uh, the traditions and all these kinds of things, celebrations, uh, we, we have what a people is. Um, and it, you know, that's something that seems to be worth defending. I think that's an obvious thing to most people who have grown up in this country, at least up until very recently. And so the thing I'm curious about is why that is being so maligned, the idea of standing up for your country and uh, your people, um, you know, the America first uh, or make America great again, these, these kind of, uh, 
taglines have been very vilified as, as something that's, that, that aren't Christian. Uh, this is to either one of you. What, what is that all about? What do you think is motivating that vilification of someone wanting to uh, defend and promote their people and the best interests of their people? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say first that I think one motivation for you know, preserving and, and having this sort of national identity is, is the connection uh, that, that Burke recognized, Edmund Burke recognizes as the eternal society, which is a connection between the dead, the living, and the unborn. And that's not just uh, the, the concept people throw out that, oh, the dead get a vote, and we need to think a lot about the future. It's more that, that the, <clears throat> the, the place that you live, the place that you, uh, that you uh, work, the place that you, um, uh, that you love, uh, this, this is the place that, where the imprint of your ancestors, the people who went before you, have left behind. I mean, really, when you walk around and you can get, you, you can get by and you can see the, the buildings and, and, and uh, the streets and the people, their customs, all those things are products of the past that have been remained permanent in the, in, in the present. Okay, so you can think, in some sense, the, the world that you inhabit is, a, is this life world. It's a, it's a, it shows forth the life activity, if you want to put that way, of the past. And, and uh, in that sense, living in the present should be a form of gratitude for the past because we can, we can actually be free. We can make our own choices, uh, ha have our own ends in life because people in the past have created these things for us. And with that, it, 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 uh, it, you should then seek to conserve that for the future. If you love your children and want the best for them, uh, and your grandchildren, your great, all, you're going to want to then conserve what you've been given as an act of, in some sense, act of piety to the past, but also in service to the future. And so something's, and I say that because I think something's gone wrong, terribly wrong, if we're just very flippant about, yeah, it's just going to burn up. I mean, there was one preacher that said, I preach that America is going to, uh, you know, come to an end and, and, and its future demise and be replaced. Well, I mean, we know in the eschaton, the eschatologically, all these things are going to be replaced in a sense. But at the same time, the way we would just kind of flippantly say, yeah, it's all going to burn up and go away. Who really cares? Or they have kind of a half-hearted concern. In some sense, I mean, really, that it's, it's an odd expression of, of uh, a lack of gratitude for the past and also just this carelessness for for the future and there's something deeply kind of i think pathological about that um that that we all in the west in particular i think this is not common there's something weird uh, about the west um that we would we would be in this state where we don't we actually want to hate the past critique and despise the past and then at the same time have this you know care carefree attitude about the future yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it seems so. You, you mentioned a virtue there, gratitude, and you know, oftentimes uh, I'll see. Uh, I think maybe Colin Kaepernick, uh, when he started kneeling during the the national anthem, is a good example of this. You know, some people were offended because they thought, well, hey, well, you know, my my grandfather, my grandfather fought under that flag, or you know, this represents um, 
sacrifices that have been made that I want to steward well. And, uh, and, and of course, the other side was uh, trying to make the case, well, that's, that is not at all you know, what uh, this protest is about. This protest is about uh, present uh, you know, systemic oppression, racism, et cetera. And, um, and there was such a divide, uh, and it's still there. It's, it's worse now probably than it was then. But um, a lot of these uh, big evangelical elites took the side of Kaepernick uh, in, in that whole um, dust-up. And I think it left a lot of working-class people who probably voted for Trump, who are you know, Christians who just go to church, live their lives, want to be left alone, uh, and continue their life as it is, confused. And, um, you know, part of, part of, uh, part of what I want to do is try to identify that. So I think, you know, Stephen, you did a great job. I really appreciate that. That's a great explanation for, I think, why we value the past, why we, we have the identity we do. Um, why do you think that is hated though so much, um, by the other side, the symbols, uh, of the past, um, the, that, that draw, that, that bind us to past generations, um, you know, the, those kinds of things. What, what do you think? Um, I, don't, I don't know, Thomas, maybe you have a thought on this. Well, I know it's been around for a while. If you go back and read people in the early 1900s, they're talking about this, this, um, this, this uh, sentiment that despises place, particularity, and that favors universal, well, they, called, they called it cosmopolitanism in the early 1900s. That's what, that was the word. We use globalism today. But, um, and even the fact that Burke, Edmund Burke in the 1700s is talking, late 1700s is talking about this uh, eternal society and we live the, the past and, and in, light of the, in light of the past and the future. Yeah, the fact that he was even talking about that meant that this, these things were being challenged back then. So I think many people who, when they try to isolate the, what, what is causing this sort of uh, um, oikophilia, oikophobia, and xenophilia, as they call it, what's causing it? There are many, probably many causes. It's hard to pin down one because it's been going on for so long. But it, I think any explanation that we come up with has to account for the fa that fact that it's been going on for a while. I think a lot of criticisms, for instance, of nationalism or or any of these issues that we're talking about, are often very provincial in uh, chronologically, ge uh, geographically, culturally, and so. It's, it's not something particular to America or um, it's happening in, evangelic, in the evangelical world. It's also happening in France. Uh, it's, it's happening in different places. And it, it, some of these Eastern European countries are coming out of it right now, um, from having, having come in out of communism a few decades ago. So it's, it's a broad movement. It's kind of everywhere. And I think the, um, don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but I think sort of this nationalism that's going, going around is, is sort of a, a reaction to it. And, it's, and that's happening everywhere also. When, when someone on the evangelical left says nationalism, what I hear is, you know, the, I think is patriotism. I, I sense, okay, you just, you don't love our country, right? And I think it's what a lot of working class Christians, that's what they're hearing. Like, what, you don't like being here? Why don't you leave? Why don't you go somewhere else, right? Yeah, as the logic goes. And in their minds, though, they're thinking that they're taking a stand against uh, neo-Nazis. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what they think. It seems like at least. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, they're on some kind of a moral crusade to rid themselves, which rid their country of these, these horrible people, which in itself seems almost like a nationalist or, or a, uh, a great concern for the country, right? They're, they're still, um, viewing themselves as, uh, being plagued by some kind of outside force or, or internal force, I guess, that um, 
uh, is encouraged by an outside force to revolt against uh, the standard norms that they believe in. That's how they view it, at least in, in my thinking. And, um, and, and so, you know, it seems to me like that, that's the, the big divide. And, and I wonder whether or not we're using two different, uh, when, when we talk about nationalism, um, you know, wh why is it that one side sees patriotism and one side sees um, neo-Nazi, uh, you know, extremists of some kind? Well, I well, think, I, go, go ahead, ahead Stephen. Oh, well, I, I, think, I think the issue is that what, what, div what divides, I think, between, you could say, the evangelical left and the right, or just the left and right, probably generally, um, excluding the center right, who probably agree more on the left than the right on this, but the, 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 the idea that, that nationhood requires an active preservation, which must follow from a principle of exclusion. So if you have a, a certain group that has certain unique particular characteristics that are more than just kind of common humanity, and you want to preserve that distinct kind of particular group of people, so in, in cultural practices, that sort of thing, then you have to, uh, you have to exclude um, people from that group. And th this happens, of course, in churches. Churches do this, you know, conservative churches do, actually all churches do this in one form or another. And that's because there's, there's a certain standard that you, you, you want to set. Now, of course, you could, uh, usually the principle of exclusion is going to be kind of exclusion from kind of mass chain, like mass movements of mass immigration, that kind of thing. But the, I think the evangelical left thinks that, the, that somehow their theology and the gospel introduce this new inclusive principle. And so when, it, when they hear nationalism, they hear, they hear something that violates that, uh, you know, command to be uh, um, in, inclusive. And, and the, yeah, and so I, I think just evangelical, like the evangelical lead broadly, uh, because, because they tend to have this weird, this kind of like quasi-separatism, you know, it's like we want to love the city but not be of it, or, or, the, or we want to, like this kind of, this sense in which we are to, you know, like enter and do good and then retreat back behind the walls of church, that kind of thing, um, that, that uh, leads them to, to adopt kind of a more inclusivist kind of posture towards their, their quote, nation. Because they're, they don't see themselves as really fundamentally part of that nation. They see themselves kind of as separate, as kind of like just, in, you know, like I said, entering, doing good, then, then leaving. Um, whereas I think someone like, you know, Tom, Thomas and I, and the more people who'd be, I guess, right wing, we'd see that, the, uh, that, the, that we are part of this nation, the American nation. We're part of this, you know, a distinct culture, distinct people group. And so we have to then implement, a, uh, uh, in order to preserve that good, we'd have to exclude. So I think that's one reason why they don't, that they, they don't like that. I mean, I, I, and I think that they would, I, I think that they would uh, agree with that characterization. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think that's, that's the divide. I also think to, to, to go negative and to where they probably won't like it, um, I think that, that, that this stuff is, the, the left is, is useful for uh, progressive causes. That is why the evangelical left doesn't like uh, the idea of nationalism. Well, if you destroy the past and the past has an imprint on the, on the present, then the present's tainted. The present is in need of reform. The present is something you need to now, uh, through social action and political action, change. And so that's why 
that's why they, they, they despise the past because then it, it frees, you know, people who are connected to place and people now have a negative relation to what, what once gave them, like animated them and loved their place. And now it's, wait, now it's a call to action to change for the future. And so it's a means of, of bringing you into a progressive um, kind of spirit to destroy the past. Why would you conserve a bunch of products of racists? So that, that's one thing. I, I, that's one, I, I think that's, I mean, I, I, my guess is that's probably more the motivation than, uh, than the inclusivist part. But uh, so, yeah, it's, it's this idea that, that, you know, if you don't have any connection to the past uh, and, or you, if, you, if you despise the past, you're going to despise the present, which forces you to action for the future. That, that's good. Uh, that's really good. And those two reasons, uh, well stated, um, they, it's a progressive tool, but it's also because of the way they view themselves. And this is where we get into identity a bit. Um, one of the things I've noticed in studying the progressive evangelical left is they tend to look at culture as kind of like this, um, this, this, this thing like this, like there's, you know, they don't like borders in, in the real world, but they have like in their minds, a conception of, uh, America or, a, you know, pick any country. Um, and, and they are outside of that looking in, they're not part of it. Uh, the church is not part of it. That's the vantage point that they seem to be, um, viewing it from. And it's the mission, it seems like of the church to then go and change this. So it's going to sort of like infuse, p- penetrate that bubble, <laughs> what if America, and it's going to change it and correct all the wrongs. And, um, and, and that's their mission or part of their mission, part of the gospel. Um, and, I think for, for us, um, I, I know speaking for myself at least, I, I never really viewed it that way. I, I thought of myself as living in a culture, um, living in a place that had certain habits and traditions uh, and um, associations, uh, you know, ties uh, that, that bound me to it, responsibilities that I had to it. And the, the church that I went to uh, also inhabited that same place. And that seems to be a a fundamental difference between the two uh, views here. Um, You know, you guys had talked about uh, philosophy of place. And I I wonder, Thomas, maybe if you could talk a little more about that, because you did such a good job. Uh, What what is it that naturally binds someone to a place? And then what is it that would cause someone to um, if, if you have an idea on this, maybe separate themselves and then try to be kind of a reformer of that or a, an outside force that's going to come in. Well, what causes us to, to love a certain place? Um, I think one, as you asked that question, one person that comes to my mind is a guy named Gouverneur Morris. Gouverneur was his first name, Morris. He was sort of like the grandfather of the founding fathers. And he wrote a letter to Alexander Hamilton, sort of exhorting him to be a patriot, a good patriot. And one of the things he says is that um, if we examine the, the climate and the countries of the earth, we see that the patriot passion is everywhere. Um, people feel it for the, for the burning sands of Libya, he says, like out there in this land. He says, on the frozen shores of, you know, whatever other country people love their frozen shores, uh, they, they, wherever they're from, and this is sort of, it's something that almost is formed in you when you're born from the, from the soil and the food that you're, you're, uh, you're weaned upon. And before you even know it, he, he, he kind of 
starts to wax eloquent and poetic, but he says, but before we're able to think the simplicity, the atmosphere, the culture, the climate, the, the habits of life that animate the people, they, they imprint themselves upon us. And it's almost like he doesn't use this phrase, but it's almost like it's this invisible hand that's working upon us to bind us. And, um, with the tenderness of our, of our, of our youth and the filial affection of our parents. And I think, uh, we quoted Cicero about seeing, you know, he sees his old house and all these, these memories flood back over him. Uh, the, the companions that you had, you know, this tree that you used to climb with your friends, you see that tree or if the tree falls down, you know, it's like this, Oh no moment. Uh, even though you don't even, it's just a tree, right? But it's, it's all these things that are forming upon you without you even being aware of it. And so what could you call this uh, time in place? And all of the, the, what Governor Morris calls the mysteries of, uh, of age. And so th those are some of the, the elements. And I think you see this here. This is, this goes back thousands of years. This is, um, I always have this being a classical guy, I, I guess I always have this broad view of things. If you, you go back thousands of years, you can see this with the story of Odysseus and Odysseus, he leaves the Trojan War. He's trying to find back, get back home. And he's a terrible sailor. Apparently he can't find, he can't get back home. And he, he, he goes to this Island and there's this beautiful goddess who wants to stay him to stay with her forever. And, and he says, no, I gotta go. And then there's another goddess that happens again. And he says, no, I can't, I have to get back to my home. And he says, there's nothing dearer to a man than his own country and his own parents. However splendid a home he may have in a foreign country, if it be far from his father and mother, he does not care about it. So the whole story of this ancient tale, one of the most famous tales ever, 800 BC, 50 BC, is about a man wanting to go back home at all costs. And that says something, that's why it's called a classic. It says something to this, um, this perennial passion in man. Yeah, that, that's good. That, um, and that seems to be a natural thing, a providential right. thing that God has infused right. in the yeah. in reality. And you know, the question is then why, if that is so natural for someone, and it is, to, to, you know, I, you, you, Father's Day, you know, you give your dad a card, world's best dad. Did you really run the numbers on that? Right, you, right. No, it's your dad. You know, I mean, this is a natural thing. Why? Why is it something that the progressives um, seem to rebel against? Do you have an idea on that? Well, I think that, I mean, there, there's, you can, there, you can make a case that it's been around for a while, but, but also Stephen mentioned post-World War II. It's, it's kind of exacerbated and heightened. And R.R. Uh, R. Reno has a, has a book on this called Return of the Strong Gods. And I think that's a pretty good book to, a pretty good explanation in his book of why it's, it's, this sentiment is really strong today. Um, World War II, the interpretation post-World War II is that whatever was happening with Hitler and the Germans, that's, that it wasn't this anomaly. This is the interpretation. Okay, this is like the interpretation of, of um, post-modernists and different, different groups. Um, it wasn't an anomaly. We think we look back at that and think, Oh man, that was crazy. That came out of nowhere. Didn't it? Well, no, it didn't. According to this interpretation, 
it didn't come out of nowhere. It, it, it was embedded in the spirit of Western man and Western civilization. And you can, you can go deeper than this. It was, it was embedded in males or Christian or whatever you want to call it, but it's there and it's there in this, um, you know, incipient form. And the whole project of post-World War II philosophy and history and art, whatever, is to root that out, to find it. The question is not, is it there, but where is it here in this thing? And again, Reno does a really great job of exposing that. And other people have uh, explained it as well. You, you, you can find this um, most prominent. So usually people trace this to like the Frankfurt School yeah. And critical I was going to say Adorno's F scale. That's what that sounds like. Right, right. The, the authoritarian personality. What is that book about? It's about the, that authoritarian character. Um, you can, there's a bunch of like transmutations that we call it different words today, like toxic masculinity or just being domineering, um, chauvinist, patriarchal, misogynist, racist. Mansplaining. Yeah. yeah, mansplaining, manspreading, um, whatever it is. It, all of these ideas um, are things that need to be suppressed. So how do you counter them? Well, uh, this, this idea is a, of a closed society, so we need an open society. It's of a bigoted society, so we need a tolerant society. And everything that came out of the Western world, monogamy, um, the nuclear family, uh, sort of this uh, – Puritan work ethic, I suppose, like all of these things need to be uprooted and deconstructed and subverted. And so you have these many projects people embark upon today. And so anytime you have any kind of sentiment, I think that goes in this, in this direction, people smell it, they sense it, and they, they wave a flag and people come running. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, do you think it is, com so when we look at like the enlightenment, uh, so, I mean, some interpretations say this is a reaction against the wars of Europe fought for religion. So we need secularism of some kind. And now do you think there's a post-World War II, a reaction against nations themselves that actually it's not religion that causes people to fight. It's national pride. It's loving your home too much. And so we need to get rid of that. And only then uh, can we have, you know, imagined by John Lennon, <laughs> that world. <laughs> I don't know. St Steven, do you, th do you think that that's, I mean, we're, we're sort of in the tube kind of trying to examine it. So it's hard. We don't have, uh, we're not far ahead looking back, but, but do you think that's a fair analysis? Um, yeah, I think that there is this, the, you can say World War II and, and Nazism, uh, I don't want to say spooked because that's given too much credit, but they, they were, it, it, like Thomas said, it, the, the, they, they wanted to uh, defeat and destroy and never let come back the, the idea of the strong gods, which would be a connection to place, um, this, this idea that, uh, that this assertiveness where you kind of stand at the border and, and assert yourself that this is mine um, or ours, uh, that, that sense of, uh, of, of strength, of, of preservation, conservation, and uh, you know, we've been talking about this whole time. So yeah, that that was all that was all kind of rejected. So that, that this is why it's always kind of fascinating that that uh, everything, anything that we think things that we don't like is you know quote literally Hitler, and of course Hitler did a lot of evil things, but so did the communists. I mean, you can in, in, you know communism killed what 120 whatever it was, a tremendous amount of people, 
but but somehow everything bad is actually this right wing this nationalism and whereas the left kind of gets a pass you can have people yeah i'm a marxist in in uh, in universities i mean imagine having a fascist in a university right. um of course they'd be kicked out and that's and th there's so everything is framed post-world war ii as this we, we have to avoid Nazism, Nazism bad. But then somehow the communists and, or the Marxists and the leftists are these people that, that we think are kind of goofy, but you know what, academic freedom. Well, what's uh, interesting and, though in that is that they don't attribute the technology you know, advances of the Nazis or the um, socialist ideas of the Nazis to be the real problems. They view the, the, the nationalism. That's that's yeah. the problem, and the, and everything kind of nationalism has to bear the weight of all of it. Yeah, people don't realize that like Mussolini, he was a he was an international socialist prior to uh, um, uh, forming the fascist party in Italy, and he just became a national socialist, <laughs> um, which is you know it is significantly different. That's why obviously why communists did hate the fascists or you know did hate the fascists. But nevertheless, it, it was this nationalistic form of of, uh, of socialism. And, and, uh, and that's what Hitler later and the Nazi party later adopted was national socialism. And so, I mean, in, in some ways, I think we could, uh, we could say that, that, that they only, like you said, they only critique the nationalism part of it uh, and not so much the actual uh, socialism aspect of it. But, you know, I, I think that, that the, the problem is that obviously that form of militaristic nationalism was was a problem. So, I mean, we're all going to, all going to say, yeah, we don't want a Nazism to arise where he goes and, and tries to take over Europe or whatever. Um, if you think that's kind of, if, unless you think that he just wanted to take over a little, a little of Europe, but, um, but the, but what, what ends up happening is that, that is that they throw out all sense of nationality, all sense of the, the idea of nation, and so they condemn places like Hungary for saying we don't want to take in tens of or tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of migrants. They condemn that as as racist, or they condemn that as bigoted, uh, because it doesn't conform to this liberal uh, this liberal project. They, they've thrown out all of the, the sense of sense of nation. And I mean, and by the way, I mean we don't have to get into this, but it just it supports international. Uh, this like, it supports globalism. It supports. In the end, it supports this globalist elite that makes a tremendous amount of money, um, while at the same time diluting, destroying, and disrupting uh, nations. I mean, it's really it's war. It's the, they're fighting against for their own gain. They fight against uh, nature, which is people's sense of the uh, uh, you know a sense of place. Well, you mentioned globalism, and I want to ask either one of you: Do you think that progressives, and this would include evangelical progressives, are unwittingly? Um, slipping into the same kind of error that the erectors of the Tower of Babel were slipping into. Uh, and I just read from Genesis 10, and it, it seems like there is a coming together of uh, taking down all the kinds of barriers that would exist between peoples. Um, and then, of course, putting them under some kind of totalitarian regime that's going to monitor them according to social credit or however they're going to do it. And this will you not. This seems to comport, perhaps, with this. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of a, a an idea of utopia that we're gonna, uh, you know, if it's not perfect, it's close. The closest thing we can get to it on Earth, if we just get rid of these things. Um, that's what I sense. Do you see that as 
Because I mean, that, that's a serious charge, if that's true. You know, if evangelical progressives are trying to re-erect the Tower of Babel, do you see parallels there? Well, yeah, yeah, certainly, because I think that, that, that evangelicals, uh, and particularly the, the, the elite ones, they, they've adopted the, the, the post-World, what's called, you know, like a, our Reno, as Thomas mentioned, the post-World War II consensus, which is not Nazi bad, and it's always just about to arise. It's always just, it's just around the corner, and we just got to fight it back, that urge to be, all become Nazis. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but that's still kind of the, the, the basic theme um, behind post-World War II. And evangelicals have just entirely adopted it. Um, and I, partly because they have this, this thing where they want to be kind of moderate and to be moderate is to adopt the same, is to adopt it. Um, to, be, to be radical would be to say, no, I, we, you know, nations are good. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I do think they, they've adopted that, but and the theology is conformed to it. The, the theology of the evangelical elite is basically that you, that you know, I think, John, you've said things like, you know, uh, love the city, hate the nation or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a little bit exaggeration probably. They wouldn't like that. But, um, they're, they're, uh, but once you kind of deconstruct the nation and you become kind of globalist, well, the church is global and the church is spread across all across the world. And, and so we should be globally minded and, and not care about our particular national in-group. And, and so, yeah, that's going to what? It's going to support the, the, the free flow of labor across borders without restrictions. Um, it's going to support uh, all sorts of internationalism and globalism that's going to undermine national sovereignty. Uh, it's going to undermine people's ability to pr- uh, secure and protect uh, their, their, their nation and uh, way of life. It's going to cause m- massive disruptions which are good for you because it's going to, you know, maximize your consumption of goods and services, I suppose. But, you know, yeah, so I, I do think that, 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 that they've, they've adopted the post-World War II consensus and they're just a part of, they're a part of it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, remembering back when you were talking to sitting in seminary and realizing in one of my courses that the kinds of pastors that seem to be trained, um, they were going for a pastor that would be, um, Kind kind of like have an international appeal and uh, and very much for city urban kinds of ministries, but um, it, it didn't work. When I remember sitting in class, I remember hearing this, this one guy who's you know he's going to graduate. He's probably pastoring somewhere now, but complaining about the folks back home, you know, in Alabama or wherever he was going to go, and he'd have to go back, and they're all boycotting the NFL because they don't want to watch people disrespect our flag, and he thinks that's just stupid and. He's saying this in class and I'm just sitting there like, man, like you're going to have to minister to these people. Right. This is where right. you grew up. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. But you know, that's the mentality that was, it was not corrected by the professor. I mean, that was, he, the professor instead was trying to teach him kind of like, well, how do you shepherd people into the right view? And it was just like, what? Um, right. And so they're, they're training people though, very much for this sort of to be international leaders. Uh, that don't have a place that are kind of like, they can just move around, I guess, wherever and be successful, uh, not tailored to, you know, the kinds of people that they're going to actually have to minister to in the real world. And, um, and I know that churches, cause before I left, I had heard, uh, they had to implement all these new kind of Christian discipline courses because their graduates were not doing well. They, they were having a lot of problems with churches splitting and, and I, I'm sure that problem has been exacerbated now. Uh, and, and so anyway, I, 
you know, thinking through that, it seems like that's the neo-evangelical kind of model is to train for international kind of leadership without these di national distinctions. Um, which I don't know, just, it was a side thought I had that was just kind of interesting to me, uh, that sparked when you were talking there. Well, uh, I'll also add if, if I can, that please. they not only, not only are they trained to be kind of these kind of global or international leaders, but they also have the mentality that will then kind of form uh, people in their congregation to be basically global citizens. You know, so be, because if, if the nation itself, if the, the nation as a people is the, the way that you resist kind of this outside encroachment, this globalism, if the nation is that, that thing that, and, and you know, is, is, what is what the thing that can resist globalism, uh, and if you undermine the, some national loyalty or the sense of place and you become more and more in sentiment, this kind of sort of global, internationally minded uh, Christian, you, you're being kind of uh, socialized and formed into the globalist system, basically. It, you're, you're, you're being, you know, you're being, you're being socialized into the, the, the very thing that the globalists want you to become. And so I think that in a large part, I mean, evangelical uh, professor, uh, well, professors, but also uh, pastors um, are, are just shaping you to be like that. That's interesting. There was an essay I read uh, years ago by Richard Weaver. I don't know if you've read it called Two Types of American Individualism. And I want to get into this idea of identity because what, what it argues essentially is that there's sort of an individualism that comes from the North and an individualism more in the South. And in the South, there's more of a sense of what you were talking about, Stephen, with uh, attachments that you grew up with, obligations, you know, ties that bind you uh, to people and institutions, et cetera, uh, very organic. But in the North, it was kind of this Walden Pond kind of, I'm an island, you know, to myself. And, and I think we see this kind of more in kind of libertarianish um, ideas today or circles today where people, uh, when they talk about individualism, often um, they don't want any kinds of bonds, you know, social bonds. Um, but of course, you know, there, there's another kind of individualism that doesn't really, that wants those social bonds, but it doesn't want socialism. And so um, I was hoping that you could sort of help us navigate towards, because uh, I think there's an identity crisis. How do we help people, um, whether it's shepherding? I know, Thomas, you know, you have a school, so I'm sure you have people coming from broken homes who have moved everywhere, who, you know, what kind of sense of place do they have? You know, what, what, true, what, what makes them who they are? How do you help people cultivate an identity that is not an island and not socialism? But actually, I think, you know, and hopefully we can bring some biblical principles to bear, but, but you know, um, but is, is a person who is uh, acknowledging uh, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God in, in, in gratitude, in, in you know, uh, forming uh, the situation that they were born into and all the things that go along with that. So, you know, with that, Thomas, you know, how do you deal with that with maybe students or people in your life? Have you helped people? that have had identity issues sort of understand kind of their place and who they are. I think, I think identity, you know, there's many, there's many ways of layering it. My identity as a man and my identity as, as an American or as a Southerner, I'm also in the South. 
or as a Westerner or as a Christian. And each of those layers are being attacked. So it's not like there's any one, I think one of the failures of today is to pick one of those identities and sort of blow it up to the exclusion of. So you're in Christ. You know, you're just in Christ and that solves right, everything. Right, okay, right. Okay. Or, or you're, um, you know, you're like transgender and you have to go, it's like, it's like the new CrossFit. You have to go around and tell everyone everywhere all the time. This is, this is your identity. Um, sorry if you do CrossFit, whatever. Okay. I don't do CrossFit. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, okay. Uh, but so one thing, one thing I, so I, I'm a student of history and what I, what I tell people, if you want to get into history, one of the best things to do is read biographies and read stories of people. Um, it's it's the memory of these people and you as sort of their uh posterity their descendant that begins to begins to bind you to something solid in the past um i think also edmund burke we mentioned him earlier he said they will not look to the to the um, to their descendants who do not, do not look to their ancestors and so this idea of having identity for me as an individual it really doesn't work. If I can give an analogy, we have art students and all, every student wants to draw or paint something out of the inner awesomeness of their self. And we tell them that's not how great art is made. Great art is always made by you studying some master, copying and copying and copying their works and eventually doing something a little different based upon that. Um, so trying to find identity as, as an individual, I think is, um, you're sort of going to, you're, you're shortchanging yourself. You're, you're cutting yourself off short. You need to find these things that are, that are beyond you and see yourself in a broader stream of something. And that could be your, your state history as, as a Louisianan. It could be your national history. It could be your, your Christian history. And I think all of those are healthy uh, layers, your family history. Um, so classically, what do we do as a classical school? We don't focus on state at the state level. At most we have a national history, but more broadly we teach a Western history. So I'm one of the things in classical education is we're trying to pass on a culture. Uh, that's part of what education is passing something on. What is that culture and the, and this cultural identity, these loves, these uh, affections, these tastes and habits were passing on a Western and a classical and Christian culture. Um, and so there's a very clear set defined, uh, you know, agreed upon, um, you know, books and ideas. And it takes a long time. You might be thinking, okay, so what books to how long is this? Yeah, it's, it's going to take about 12 years, right? Really um, of, of you absorbing this material and doing it while the world is trying to undo it. So it has to be this self, it's not something that we can just kind of passively grow up, grow up in today. You have to actively turn your mind toward it and, uh, and take it on for yourself. And we do that at our school through, again, we read, we read all the great books, obviously. We read the history of science too, those, like how did that develop? So we take everything. Um, Every morning we have like this uh, calendrical um, prayer that we, you know, what, what happened this day in church history or, or Western history. And so it's sort of this um, washing over time. And I'd, ideally, my goal would not be to, pr to produce people who are 
merely Westerners. I would rather something more particular. Um, but I think at, at where we are right now, merely recovering a broad Western tradition is task enough in itself. Um, it's sort of people talk about classical education as we're rebuilding the ruins of this once great cathedral. And well, where are we in that stage? I think we're at the stage of trying to fix the foundation. Um, later on, we can talk about rooms and things and maybe some of the other people, that's their area of work, but mine is sort of um, at the bottom right now. That, that is excellent. And that, it sounds kind of like uh, what God instructed the Hebrews to do in remembering the crossing of the Jordan by a monument that would have stood the test of time. The right, children, right. you know, an opportunity to ask well, what, what happened there. And then it forms an identity within them, just like their peculiar habits that God uh, implemented as well. And, um, you know, this is something that it, it means a lot to me. And I, you know, I'm happy to hear you say it's not just Western. And, and I realize, you know, it's just kind of like, we're, I feel like we're hanging on. We're trying to recover uh, these basic things, but I'm a localist and there's regional right. things that are so special. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this even, even with progressives. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask. Is it inescapable uh, to, to have some kind of um, an identity tied to place? Even if you hate the nation, um, I see progressives, they, they have these like, you know, farm markets and stuff and like they, right. they want organic vegetables. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. Yeah, yeah. Eat so, local, so, buy local. Yeah, yeah buying local. Um, you know, it's a very big thing in progressive circles. You know, is it inescapable? I mean, is, is this just how God's wired us? We, we love place. Um, it seems to me like it is, uh, and you can't really push that down for inevitably, like it's, it's going to come out somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's natural. Um, uh, if you, if you can find people talking about this in all cultures at all times, essentially that every individual is disposed to love those near to them. In fact, I think it was John C. Calhoun who talked about the, um, concurrent majority. Yes. The whole, the whole reason for that was that politically people are disposed to prefer policies that affect them locally because that's as Aristotle talked about that. I can go on and on and on, but he said friendships extend or, or cities extend as far as friendships do. And so I know you can naturally artificially extend them further, but um, you know, he's just thinking in, a, in, a, in an ancient sense, this is how we, we function. It's, it's how we think the human mind can't, account for all variables past a, past a human scale, so to speak. And that's something in political philosophy people don't talk about a lot is what is a, what is a, hum, a humane, a human scale for, for a nation? How far can our allegiances and our loves and our, our, can they be extended so far that they're so thin they break? Um, so, yeah. That, that's a really good point because I think the evangelical elites – tend to have this idea of, you know, loving the whole world. Um, and we should all have, it should be a love we have for humanity, but they, um, it, it's kind of like, I think what you just said about stretching the cords too thin, that, that's what it feels like. Uh, you know, I, I can't go to every country. I, no matter how much money I have, I can't give to every cause. I can't, there's only so many things I can do. Right. And in God's providence, I got to invest that into, um, what he's put in front of me. And that seems like the obvious place, uh, you know, first to the household of faith, you know, first to your family, whoever doesn't provide for them is worse than an infidel, right? So we have these things in scripture. Um, how would you, uh, 
and, and this, maybe this is more for Steven. I don't know either one of you, but how, how would you respond? I know you are responding on Twitter, but give me a help for those who might be in a church where their pastor is saying nationalism is wrong. Loving your people is wrong. That's racism, et cetera. I, give us some tools for responding to that. Steven, uh, you want to wow. go? Um, that, that is, uh, that, that's, that, that's tough. I mean, I, I can't, I can't say that I have any great wisdom on how to, how to deal with that, that situation in particular, uh, in a, in a church, um, kind of nervous to provide. I don't want to say leave. Uh, it, it really depends on the situation, but I, I think that at well, least well, having, yeah, let's just say the pastor's ignorant. This is, they heard this in yeah. seminary and now they're preaching because they think uh, unwittingly, well, this is what Christianity is because every tribe, tongue, nation, revelation seven, and now, you're there and you're kind of like, well, I don't want to feel guilty because, you know, we're not diverse enough or whatever, you know, it, yeah. I like our potlucks. I like our, you know, our songs and that kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, just, just practically, if this is something that like that the pastor just goes on and on about, I would just, you know, and, and you have the, the ability to perhaps go to a different church. Uh, just, just go uh, and don't, um, you, you could, I, there's nothing wrong with going to a different church. Um, and I, I, I would just recommend that you, you kind of announce to the elders your decision, maybe even request to leave to go to, go to a different church. Um, I, I've done that before uh, where I just requested to move to a different, actually to a different denomination, and they just said yes um, over another theological issue. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing to do, but, but that, that might, that's the last resort. I think that you should try to engage them uh, ex- and, and, and the best you can kind of explain the, the goods that are uh, that are that are uh, provided by the sense of nationality uh, and and the and the theology and I mean I, this is it, it's challenging because you have to bring a lot of theology to this um, uh, you'd have to make distinctions between nature and grace you'd have to say look we're all naturally human and so we're we're kind of we we tend to or we 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 need this um, this nation or this this sense of place and the sense of we out in into the world, not just in the church, but actually out into the world as well, um, uh, in, into kind of civil society. And those things are all worth preserving. Uh, and I mean, you just have to bring uh, the best arguments you can. Uh, but otherwise, if, if the pastor just goes on and on and on about that in sermons and denounces the very things that you think preserve that are for your good, then you, you, may, not, you may want to just um, peaceably uh, kind of leave that church. But I'm hesitant to provide that advice, but I think that that might be in the end, the, the best thing to do. Could I explain, I guess, one thing that helps me in this. So one of the things that I don't mean to plug classical education here too much. right. But one of the things that drew me, drew me into this was the idea of rootedness. Um, traditions are things rooted um, in, in time and, and experience. And so the modern world is sort of this world that's cut itself off and we're drifting around in our relationships, we, we don't even, we don't know what gender we are and all this crazy stuff today. Well, how do you, how do you know uh, you align yourself with, with the predominant, um, the, the uh, preponderance of, of humanity and, and human experience. And there's a lot of people in history that have written uh, contrary on, on, on nationalism, on natural affection, contrary to what you're hearing today. Um, thousands and thousands of people. And um, 
I don't mean to plug uh, something here, but you're asking, I think this would help, help people. Um, a, a colleague and I have been working on um, something for a while, which is basically like an anthology of natural relations. And uh, we're trying to get it out and, and publish it as soon as we can. But it's, it's a, several hundred pages of people and it's Presbyterians, it's Catholics, it's Greeks, it's Romans, it's Jews, it's Chinese people, it's people in the 3000 BC, it's people in the 100 AD, all speaking about natural social relations and the things we're talking about here in a way that demonstrates that, I guess, what we're expressing is natural, normal. Christians come along and say things like, God arranged it this way, his, his benevolent hand providence. of providence, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, and so, um, I think to me, I put this together because it just, it, it helps me when all around me is blowing in different directions. I know that this is an anomaly that these views today, it's, yes. it's an aberration uh, on the historical scene. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't like, public uh, promoting myself or whatever, but we, we are trying to put this together and, and publish it. So it's, and it's not done. Is there a website though, or where people can get an update or no, uh, I don't, okay. it's, it's just a, it's just a, a file and you'll have um, to come back on. You'll have to send it to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I've seen versions of it. It's, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, another thing I would say is, uh, is, is, is ecclesiology, uh, is, is really important. Uh, and, uh, I, I mean, I'm Presbyterian and, uh, and so I, I, this may not be the perfectly Baptist take though. I think it could be. Um, but that I think that if we tend to in evangelicalism, just broadly, it's not just the elite, but everyone, we tend to place too much on the, the institutional church that the, that this association that we have as members of this church is supposed to satisfy like every, every human Christian and, and Christian um, need and good that, that we, that, uh, that, that we have. Um, and so we, we see the church as, well, no, this is your, this is your new, uh, um, your new citizenship is heaven and this located in the church. And so you kind of, you can renounce your earthly one. This is the place where you're, you're a holy nation. So you don't really need that, that other nation or it's just kind of secondary. Um, this is a place where you learn uh, ethics and everything is in, is in the, the, the institutional church. Of course, and the pastor becomes a, a CEO and all that, but um, <laughs> at times, um, just because so much pressure is placed on them to do all this stuff, every human needs there. And I, I think that that is just um, a, a faulty view of just a bad ecclesiology. And I think we should, we need to say, that they are, they are two different institutions. You have civil and you have ecclesiastical. Each of them has a role in your life. And one, uh, one does something that the other cannot do, or at least cannot do well. So the obvious one for the civil realm is, uh, you know, it, it can do fire departments, but the, <laughs> the church can't have a fire department, probably not, unless you're really big, or police department, or, um, you know, all, all sorts of things. So I think I think that the importance is to is to see your church as a place that provides spiritual good for eternal life, uh, for for the for the gospel. It also trains you in in moral theology and some of the other things, but that you have to not see that as well. Ideally, the church is this political church and is where we go. No, you have to, both uh, realms 
provide the human for the, the Christian with these uh, with these needs. Um, and so that means that the, the nation, uh, which is something that doesn't have to be separate from the church, doesn't even have to be outside the church. Nevertheless, it does being non-ecclesiastical and as an institution is this thing that provides you these national good, these, these goods as a human being, you know? So I guess the bottom line is we shouldn't see the institutional church as a replacement for what, for like Tom was talking about, like the, these classical authors talk about the, you know, the importance of, of place and, and, uh, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and nation the gospel did not replace that and then implant it in the church, you know, as, as an institution, the, these two different realms, if you want to call them ecclesiastical and civil provide the, the, the uh, each a unique set of goods. And um, we shouldn't make one like the replacement for the other. Well, this is where I, my, my heresy meter starts to my yellow flags at the very least start going up when, and I've seen what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, where we expect the gospel to accomplish things that the gospel was not intended to accomplish in this realm, in this life. And uh, kind of almost adding to it, really, that's, that's where my heresy meter starts going off, adding to it that this is somehow part of Christian identity is, and, and, and I've seen this, I don't know if you've seen this, where especially men, women, not as much, but men, um, and it may be women, but maybe it's just because most of my friends, you know, I hang out with men and I hear more what they're saying, but they, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't always work well with men when they, let's say person goes to church, they get saved. And now all of a sudden they're kind of being told, or at least it's implied that they should be at church for everything. And all their needs are here fulfilled here. And you know, what they ever, they used to do, whatever hobbies they had and civil you know activities they were involved in civic stuff. Uh, they can't, you know, that, that's not really, it's sort of second tier. Like, you know, you, you really want to be sitting in every, you know, every time the church is open, you got to come here and sit and listen to lectures, et cetera. And men just, that's not how we are. That's <laughs> like, we, we yeah, tend well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, right. So the, 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 we, we tend to think that, that all of life needs to be kind of inside the church, you know, the institutional right. church and, it, and it needs to be a kind of a program. It needs to be something that the church officially does that you participate, that you, you, you know, that you participate in. Bingo. There, there, there's a difference between you studying, you know, manhood, uh, like, like a masculinity with a pastor and a formal Bible study at official program. That's one thing. And that's, that's fine. All right. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a different thing as well. And it's a good thing for men of the same church to do, to just, talk and do things together outside of the church, but not as an official program. And in some sense, that's a civil thing, even though you're Christians and you're from the church, it's an outside, it's like an extra ecclesial thing you're doing with Christian men. Let's say you're, I don't know, you're building something or you're, I don't know, whatever you're doing outside. I I do a lot of like hiking and outdoors activities and I would just hang out with guys from the church, you know, and go, but we weren't, didn't think it was a worship service, but a lot of yeah. social formation happens in those at sometimes more formation happens in that. Yeah. And I think that it would be good to think of that as a, not as a church thing, um, but as a human thing that just, that is, you know, you could say adorned or accented, whatever word you want with Christian, uh, with Christianity, 
So you're doing a very human thing by hiking. It's not an official program of the church, um, and and yet you're doing it as as Christians. So th- those that's kind of what I'm I'm saying is that you can you can you can think of these two separate uh, uh, realms, and both are good. You know, both are both are these good things that as humans you need to you you need. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, uh, Thomas, any any final thoughts? Uh, I, I want you guys both to plug kind of your website and everything as well, if you have one. But any, any thoughts you want to add to that? Uh, to anyone who's just kind of confused about all of this uh, and hearing different things from Christians and and the culture, just uh, just to reiterate something I said earlier. There's there's a lot of um, of people out there present and past who have said otherwise and who have uh, validated, I'd say, or reinforced this sort of natural feeling that you might have or natural revulsion from the things you're hearing today. And those, those people are accessible. Um, If you want, I can, I can give you some things to look at, uh, to read. And um, you can check our, our podcast that we kind of talk about this. Um, as well, Ars Politica, but just be encouraged, but also know that recovering this sort of identity of any sort, it it takes time and it takes consistent maintenance today. And the best thing you can do is to get into it now and get into it with other people who are around you. And for me, that happens at sort of a, a, a young level for children. So if you have children, you have to be active about this with your children. You can't be passive and just say, oh, they're going to figure it out or whatever. Like they, they need more than the nuclear family is very important, but they need more. They need a community of people doing this together. So uh, almost every city or town, you can find people who are pursuing yeah. recovering sort of Western. You're, taking, Christendom. you're, you're saying it takes a village. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a village. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. No, that's, that's, that's excellent. And I mean, I want that for my kids too. I, I feel like I grew up now I'm realizing it's unique, but you know, we would go to historical landmarks and I, when I was homeschooled and I was proud to be a Harris. I was proud of, you know, I, I don't know, just I, I was thankful really. I say pride, but it was this gratitude to be in America, to be a Christian, all these things. And right. um, just how, how rich that is. Uh, yeah. Where, where can people find you? I know you said people can reach out to you. What's the best way to do that? Twitter? Uh, for me, they, you can find me on Facebook. Facebook. Uh, just Thomas A. Corder or Twitter. I mean, you can email us at arspoliticapodcast.gmail.com. Uh, also, um, you can check out my school. I don't really like plugging that, though, but it's, I, I teach at a school. You can just email me and we can talk about it. Well, um, I, I'll put the, the links in the info section. Sure. So I'll put the Ars Politica uh, link there and people can subscribe. But you guys on iTunes or just YouTube or yeah. where? Yeah, okay. I, all, the, all the podcast places, Ars Politica. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Stephen, where can people find you? Same place? Uh, yeah, yeah, the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I know you both are, are on Twitter and uh, you know, Facebook and I enjoy your posts um, and I'll put those links in the info section for anyone who wants to follow Thomas Accord or Stephen Wolf uh, on Twitter. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on and explaining some of these things. I know we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg, but this is immensely helpful. 
for so many people, even the people that just want to be reinforced in, in the idea that they're not crazy. Um, you guys have helped and I appreciate that. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. John thanks. was great. Yeah. God bless. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and hope it was helpful to you in understanding why progressives go after nationalism. Now, there's many more things that could be said. In fact, uh, I talked about uh, the fact that nationalism as a term was first used by socialists, by Edward Bellamy. Uh, Fran he was a cousin of Francis Bellamy who gave us the Pledge of Allegiance, and he formed these socialist clubs that he called nationalist clubs in the United States in uh, the late 1800s. And it's interesting to me that the origin of this term and the way it was used, um, now it's kind of viewed as kind of a, an over-the-top patriotism by the progressive left. That's what it seems like, at least. But I went through some of the history of the use of the term and what I think the term means today. You're going to want to check that uh, video out if you haven't seen it, Beth Moore and Christian Nationalism. I'm putting the link in the info section for this video. Also, Stephen Wolf and Thomas Accord are recording a video specifically on Christian nationalism. So uh, we didn't actually get into that. We were planning on it, but uh, I don't know if it slipped my mind, but uh, Stephen told me after I pushed the uh, button to stop recording that they were planning on doing a whole episode on this. They have a lot of thoughts, and um, they're going to get more into this idea of mixing kind of um, civic and, uh, and then ecclesiastical uh, symbols and roles and that kind of thing and uh, you know is that appropriate when is it appropriate uh, if ever those kinds of questions and um, and and so we kind of hopefully this was kind of the precursor to that this is kind of the intro and hopefully that's gonna uh, help you a little more uh, as they talk about it so I would encourage you to go subscribe to their podcast if you want to hear more about specifically Christian nationalism and what that is or isn't and, um, and uh, hopefully that'll be helpful to you. Until next time, God bless. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.